Um, I thought last week we kind of wrapped up the series on the heart of worship. And worship, the heart of worship is because worship starts in your heart, right? Are you with me? Okay, we're going to get off to a good start today, aren't we now? Okay, so I'm going to ask you to turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture, Exodus chapter 20. Anybody remember what that is? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. Um, So how does this figure into our series on worship? I thought we were done, but the Lord's like really convicted my heart. There's one more thing that I think we ought to say before we kind of move on uh, in another direction with this. Um, So I want to talk about worship and reflecting the image of God. All right, so this might seem a little strange at first, so I want you just to stay with me here and uh, find that passage, and we're going to read that. Um, Also, um, if you've got the handouts, we've got notes for you to fill in some blanks and take some of your own notes and take home with you, because our idea is not just what we do here, but to take this out of here, to take this home with us, to continue to digest this and meditate on this and let let it... The, the Holy Spirit apply it to our lives throughout the week. So you've got that. If you've got the Version Bible app, anybody? How many of you use Version Bible app? Okay, we've got it. Just go to menu, events, type in Hartville Mo. If you don't have your locator on, you'll find our church there. We've got notes on there. You can follow along, add your own notes there. So uh, there's no excuse not to kind of take some of this with you today, right? Right, okay, here we go. We're going to read in Exodus chapter 20. Of course, you know this is the Ten Commandments. Um, We're we're familiar with that, most of us. And the first one is, I am the Lord your God. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, we know about taking the name of the Lord your God in vain and things like that. But this this, uh, one right here in verse 4, let me read that. It says, you shall not make for yourself... A carved image, or a graven image, it may say. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. He says, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, understand in that, God's not saying that he's going to hold children responsible for father's sins. That's not what he's saying there. But as you know, in our lives, as we go against God's word, and as bad things and consequences happen in our life, it affects our children and our grandchildren. But the good news in that is God is a God of mercy that anywhere along the line, if somebody God says wants to listen to me and wants to love me and wants to hear what I'm saying to them, all these commandments aren't given to try to keep you from having a good time. They're they're set because this is what's going to guarantee you to have a good life. And so showing mercy Upon them. All right, so this whole thing of not to make these carved, these graven images, the reason why is that God is unlike anything else in the universe, and anything that you come up with would be a bad picture of God. That's exactly what it would be. Now, the image of God, image of God, first mentioned in the Bible, all the way, let's talk about it. Are you focused in on that? Think about the image of God. First mentioned in in, in, uh, how we're imaging Him. So don't image me through something like that. Uh, but this whole idea of the image of God first is found in Genesis on the sixth day of creation when God is creating human beings. And it's recorded right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now, if you're following along on the online notes, the verse is right there. I've also got it up here. I want you to see it. If you've, you've got your Bible open, turn to it. Uh, mark it down. I want you to see it as well as hear it. Uh, Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, 
Let us make man or mankind in our image. So you see automatically there the oneness of our God, yet the plurality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which was kind of a mystery in the Old Testament that's more clearly revealed in the New Testament, but yet it's there. It is there. And you see that here. It says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Next verse, he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So this very emphatic in God's own image. That image isn't talking about a physical form. It's talking about in our heart, mind, uh, our, our will, and in our emotion, our soul. That we're in the image of our creator. That we can reflect who he is in, in through, through our nature. Uh, and so that's part of what that is all about. And, but notice how emphatic he is about how God created man. God created man, mankind, and it's very emphatic that male and female, he created them. God purposely created human beings, male and female, and he made us different. And I know there's a lot of people that struggle with this in our day and time, but, but there's reasons why God did this, and um, we're not the same. We don't think the same, right? We're unique. And what's interesting is over in chapter 5, when it talks about the day that God created them, God called their name. And some, some translations say God called their, Adam and Eve, that God called their name Adam, or that God called their name man. Uh, but the Hebrew word translated man or mankind is the Hebrew word Adam. And it's interesting that God says they were such a unit of togetherness that God called their name Adam or man. Yeah, mankind. So anyway, that's that. But you see the image of God being mentioned there in the perfect world that God created. You, you and I would have been. I mean, you know, we didn't get to live in it. Adam and Eve did for a little while. But the humans that God created were created differently than anything else. There was nothing else that God created like them. If you read that story, it says that God breathed into their nostrils a breath of life, right? And God created them in his image. That's unique. Nothing else was created like that, that we were created. Think about it. We were created to reflect the image of our creator. Now, when mankind chose to sin, sin came in and sin brought with it a curse, if you remember. And that image of God was marred within us so that we're not really reflecting who God is very well, right? So what I want you to understand is what happens with redemption and what happens with salvation as we come to Christ and as we're saved, uh, we're, we're, we're transformed uh, as we're converted, all of that, words that we use. What happens, what God is doing with us as we're saved, as we receive what Jesus did on the cross by faith as payment for our sins and we're trusting him as our Lord, our Savior. What, what happens is, is God begins working in our lives and God is restoring that image in us so that you and I are able to more clearly reflect to those around us the image of our creator as we worship him are we reflecting the proper image of God is a question we got on our hearts today right so this is what God is doing so the command here that we just read over in Exodus chapter 20 has to do with false images that people would make of God so as we begin to approach God as we begin to worship God um, we not only we must not only be conscious of the many ways that we violate the first commandment, that a lot of times we might have other gods before us, 
we do that in a lot of different ways. You know, we might have other things in our life that come before God. We may not think we're worshiping them, but really it's like, it's like an idol in our lives. But we also need to be conscious of how we violate the second commandment. We need to watch out there because uh, we, may, we may have a problem here, and that's what I want us to talk about for just a little while. Because a lot of people in our culture, they seem to be unaware of the significance of this. Because a lot of us would say this, say, you know what, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know anybody that's been out there and carved some, some statue or something and worshipped that. I don't know of anybody that has carved themselves out some kind of idol and then bowed down and worshipped it. I don't know of anybody that has done anything like that. But here's what we fail to realize. What we fail to realize is this, is that when you and I fail to reflect a correct image of God and who he is in our life and through our worship, as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, we are, in fact, guilty of creating a false image of God. Excuse me. We're guilty of creating a false image of God. All right? So when you say that's serious, amen, uh, so uh, some people might say, well, you know, you reflect God your way. I'll reflect God my way. You know, in fact, aren't there just many paths that lead to God and so forth? Well, the God of the Bible said, no, there's not. Jesus said that he's not the best way to heaven, actually. Jesus said that he was the only way to heaven. He's the only one that came down from heaven and identified with us fully, except that he was perfect and never sinned. And he was the only one qualified to take our sin to the cross and pay the price to be our substitute, the payment that was due us. He was the only one qualified to do that. And he's the only one that has ascended back to the Father's right hand. He's the only one that can take you to heaven. He's the only one that's already made the round trip. Amen? So uh, that's what he said. So the Bible is very precise and very exact about how we're to come to God and how we're to worship him. Even when God told Noah to build the ark, he couldn't just build any old thing that he wanted. God gave him specific instructions on exactly how and what was to be used. And the reason why God did that was he wanted everybody to know you can't just come to me and obey me any way you want to. You have to do it the way I provided, the way that since he is God, right? The way he has laid out there, all right? So the authority for the image. What's the authority that we base this on of our reflecting God's image? There's only one thing that you and I have tangible in this world that we can find this truth in. And that is God has provided a permanent, complete description of who he is and how he works in his word. In his word, right here. And, and we believe this book, we believe is inspired, as we say, from Genesis all the way over over to maps, right? In in most of our Bibles, maps comes right after Revelation, right? It's all the way, this whole thing, that God has expressed this in his word. So our understanding, see, we could have never attained this. We could have never thought high enough because... Because God is so incredible and so high, we could have never thought to that level had God not revealed it to us. We could not have discovered it ourselves. God, in his all-powerful, all-knowingness, had to reveal it. That is called revelation, that God reveals to us what we could have never known any other way except he did that. And that's what he did through his word. He caused his word to be written down under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that when the word hit the page, it was what God wanted. Yeah, God used people to write it down, but God superintended the process so that when it was there, it was exactly what God wanted. That's called inspiration. It is God-breathed. That's the word, the scriptures. That's what the Bible even says about itself. 
And then when you and I read it and we're trusting the Lord, we're coming to know the Lord, and His Spirit comes into our life, He throws the light on this so that we can understand it and apply it to our life. We call that illumination. He illuminates our understanding. So this is, this is where we're going to have to find it, and this is the place. So as His people, here's the thing. As, the, as His people, if we call ourselves His people, the way we represent or, quote, image Him must be consistent. Are you with me now? Are you? It must be consistent with the way he has revealed himself. It must be consistent with his self-revelation in Scripture. The way that we image him has to be consistent with that. And I have to ask myself, am I presenting him that way? Uh, Can my friends, can, can my family, can people that are hanging around me, can they really come to see the God of the Scriptures, you know, through my life? Okay, that's the question. Now, God's revelation of who he is, you need to know through scriptures, is progressive. It progresses. When it starts out in Genesis, there's just a little bit of truth that we can gather there. But God continues throughout the pages to reveal more and more and more about himself and about who he is, about his holiness, about his justice, about his mercy, about his love, about his grace. All of these things continue to be unveiled and unveiled more and more and more so that Paul says when we get to the New Testament, this mystery, he calls it like the mystery of the gospel, that it was once kind of contained and not really understood, but now God has revealed it to us. It was his plan all along. It was one plan from Genesis all the way through, one One thing that is unfolding. One story that is unfolding. But it's been progressive as God has revealed to us more and more. So let me give you some example about that. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God expressing various aspects of who he is in different ways. We see it even in nature. God expressing attributes of his awesomeness and giving a picture of what he's like. He revealed, or you might say he imaged himself. At the foot of Mount Sinai, you remember that? You remember the pillar of of, of fire and the great cloud that went for the people and God's greatness and vastness and awesomeness? He kind of helped them understand a little bit about that as they came out of Egypt and were there camped at Mount Sinai. He revealed and imaged his character when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, right? A little about his character. He revealed and taught a little more about himself through the Ark of the Covenant, which was kind of like an object lesson. It was right there, and it was in the tabernacle, in the temple. And this Ark, this, this little box that they had, it had a, a seat, a lid on top, a lid. And it was called the mercy seat. And on that were the cherubim, and, and it was right there on that Ark. And that Ark represented God's agreement, God's covenant with those people. That if they would do what he provided for them and said that they did that by faith and obeyed that, they would have a relationship with him at that time. It involved those sacrifices that were all symbolic, we know now, of Jesus. But in that temple and in that tabernacle, God's, a visible expression of God's presence would come on that and dwell right above the lid of that, that mercy seat of that Ark of the Covenant. And it would be like a glowing cloud. The, the Hebrews call it the Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God, that we see that. So God was showing a little bit about his holiness and about his glory and about his presence as he dwelt there. In fact, when they built the bigger temple uh, for this during the Old Testament time, we're still during the time of the law, 
You remember when Solomon was king, they built, instead of having the tabernacle that represented and taught all these things, they built a more permanent place there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They built the temple, and it was magnificent. And on the day they dedicated that, the Ark of the Covenant is put in the Holy of Holies, right? And on that day, Solomon dedicated. He knelt down before God with his hands raised to heaven, and he began to pray. And when Solomon finished praying at the dedication of the temple, God revealed his presence by fire that came down from heaven to consume the offerings, and God's glory filled the place. There was a glory cloud to the point that people just couldn't even stand it. It was just like overwhelming, right? That's the same God. But he was revealing a little bit more about his majesty and his glory even right there. And all these actions and words of God, all are images helping people to understand who he is. And there's nothing you can come up with and make, is what he's saying in the commandments, that you can make to represent that would be an accurate representation of him, right? It's just kind of like no picture that I've ever had taken for my driver's license has really ever been an accurate representation of me. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's always a bad picture. And what God is saying is anything that you try to come up with on your own is going to be a bad picture of me, God says. I don't know how that happens. I mean, I look like the worst criminal in the world nearly every time when I get, man, I've got I've to do mine again. And I'm just trying to practice. But I don't know. And we've had people attend church here that actually work and do that. I don't know. Do they have some kind of special training where they train you to try to do something in the lighting and all of that and to distract people and to know the right moment to click that thing so it catches you looking you know it's like crazy but um i don't know but it's kind of like in and i remember the last time there was like even they gave me a couple of options e none of the above how about that one but you know it's like oh this isn't a photo shoot let's just get this done right but God's saying, you want to be careful. He says, I care very much of how you are representing me out there. And then as we go in Scripture, we find the ultimate image of God. Ready? The ultimate image of God. The ultimate image of God. When God decided it was time to give us the ultimate expression of who he is, he decided to do this, and he did this through his son. Amen? He did this through his son. In fact, over in Hebrews, listen to this. I'm going to, I'm going to read this to you. All right, now I'm going to show you one of those verses. Hebrews chapter 1, listen to this. Are you listening? He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past. That's Old Testament. That's back, you know, like I was telling you. He spoke in various ways uh, to the fathers, our fathers, our ancestors, by the prophets. So God spoke to them through various means, and he used various things, right? The law of the temple, all these different things. But listen to what he says now. Has in these last days. Now, if the writer of Hebrews felt like they were living in the last days, we're in the last part of the last days for sure. But he says, has in these last days spoken to us by his, are you reading it? By his son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Listen to this. Through whom he also made the worlds. That's the cosmos. Are you with that? Isn't that awesome? Listen to this. I'm going to put verse 3 up there so you see it. Are you, you got it? Who? Speaking of who? The son. Jesus. Speaking of Jesus. He says who? Being the brightness of his glory. He is a, the brightness of his glory. And look, listen at that. The express image. There's our word. 
that Jesus is the exact image, the express image of his person, that is, of his nature. Now, Father, Son, Spirit are all different persons of the Trinity, and so that word would probably be better translated nature, that he expressed the nature of who God is and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself, by himself, purged our sins. Do you see that? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the express, the exact image of the nature of who God is as God, the Son. And so this is the primary, listen folks, this is the complete image of God is revealed to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. You're not going to get to know anything more about who God is like, what God is like, until you know him through the way he's revealed himself through his Son. Amen? So not only, listen, did he come to die on the cross to pay for your sins, he also came so that we could understand more what God is like. So understand that the, all of the Old Testament, that mystery was wrapped up in there. And we see how that the entire Old Testament pre-imaged the Son. We see so many things in that tabernacle, that temple. We see so many of those things reflect on who Jesus is. We see so many things about the sacrifices and all that reflect on who Jesus is to the point that when he showed up, John the Baptist pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That is the Lamb that God provides, the, that takes away the what? Sin of the world. So he's pre-imaged himself. And we see that all the way through all the prophecies, all the things pointing to Jesus, so much so that Paul said when the fullness of the time came, when the right time, when the exact right time came, Galatians 4, 4, says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, this is that one who has existed from all eternity, God the son, that when the right time came, God sent him forth, born of a woman, born under the law. He came into this world. That when he was here, he was fully God, yet fully human at the same time. Born of a woman, because no male seed was involved, right? Virgin birth is right there in that verse as well. Amazing. And uh, it's explained, Paul explains how this happened in Philippians. This is one of my favorite passages. It talks about how Jesus voluntarily, he was sent by the Father, but he voluntarily, he lowered himself. He humbled himself to come down and to dwell among us and to be our Savior. Listen how he says it here. He says, but made himself. Did you get that? It's talking about Jesus. That Jesus made himself. It wasn't forced on him. It, he, of himself, voluntarily. You know why? Because he thought you were worth it. You don't believe that? Huh? John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he gave His only begotten son, that, what's that next word? It's your name. It's what it is. Whosoever. That's you. That's me. That's any and all of us, no matter what. It says that he made himself of no reputation. That is, when he came, he didn't come into some royal family. He came into a lowly family that you would have never thought, right? They were just common folks, even though Mary and Joseph both could trace their ancestry back to David. Um, says, taking the form of a bondservant. So he didn't just come into the flesh. He came in this way, a very lowly way. And said, in coming in the likeness of men or of humans and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient 
to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Not just a death, but the death on the cross. How he humbled, he did all of this. He lowered himself to do that for you. And so verse 9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He had to do this in order to fully identify with us and to pay the only price a holy God could accept for our sin, to cover our sin. He had to do that, and he did it. He also did this in order. So he came not only to do that, but he came to express to us what God is like. That he expressed God to us in a more tangible and understandable way. In the flesh. Really human. I mean, think about this. That God is a personal God. And that God actually lived in the flesh in real time on planet earth. His feet touched the ground. As God, he knew all things. As God, he's all powerful. But yet as fully human, we see him get hungry. As human, we see him get thirsty. As human, we see him get sleepy. He was tempted, the writer of Hebrews says, in every way, just like any of us, yet without sin. So get this. We not only have a God who knows all things. Because I could say, God, I feel weak. God, I'm sick. Lord God, all my friends are stabbing me in the back. And God who is God, knows all things. He would know what you're saying. But God's never felt any of those things, you might think. Because God is self-sufficient. God is perfect. But when God became flesh and dwelt among us and was fully human as well as fully God, when you pray and when you're talking about God, I feel lonely. God, I feel this way or that way. You have a God who knows exactly what it felt like because he actually, as God, experienced it as human in the flesh on planet Earth. He knows exactly your experience. I just think that's awesome. I just think that's awesome. And not only that, but he imaged who God is to us. Can I give you some more verses on that? We've got to document what we say by Scripture, right? Right? Are you ready? Here we go. In Colossians 1.15, he's talking about Jesus. And he says that he is the image of the invisible God. There's our word again. Are you guys getting this? Maybe you're more excited than what you look like. But he is the image of the invisible God. That he came down to show us what God is like. The firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn is a Greek word that literally means number one. Not just first in order, but first in priority. He is over all creation. He is the image. And that word image, you know what the Greek word that the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek and then later translated into English and all that, you know? No, they didn't speak Elizabethan English in Paul's day, right? All right? And so, but the Greek word that comes from that, that's translated into English, is the Greek word. We we use that Greek word today. Did you know that? It's the word icon. Icon. He is the icon of the invisible God. And it's really neat because we can relate to this in a way today because he was the visible expression of who God really is in nature. 
So now, you and I, we call them apps, but you know, in the earlier days of the computer, you would have a program, and you would have an icon on your desktop. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Come on, come on, yeah, yeah. Am I getting way too... Okay, so you have your apps, you have this little picture of it on your whatever you got. On your phone, on your tablet, all right? Maybe on your watch, I don't know. Maybe on the back of your eyeballs, who cares? But anyway, but what I'm saying is you got this little picture. And when you, when you touch it, right, when you click it, we used to click. Now we just tap and touch, right? Man, how the world's changing. But anyway, so when you do that, what happens is, is it opens that program, right? Right? Are you following me? Come on. Here's the point. We can use that today. Is that... Jesus is the icon of all that God is. When you click on Jesus, you don't get just some uh, Jewish teacher who was a great uh, moral man. You don't get just some prophet who lived on planet Earth. When you click on Jesus, you get God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Of the Godhead. That's talking about all the fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Of deity. All the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. Did you catch that? In bodily form when he was here. The fullness of all that God is dwelt in him. And I'm going to tell you, full means full. That is, he wasn't just part. He wasn't just half God, half human. He was fully God. Amen. Amen. So this is who he is. He is, the angel said when he was born, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. And listen to me, listen. Through Jesus, God was fleshed out. I don't know if that's a good expression or not. But God was fleshed out among us. No wonder God's so protective of how he's portrayed by his people. No wonder his commandment here was so important and significant in his relationship with us. About creating false image. Well, that leads us to this. The rejection of God's image. Because even back over in our text. Genesis chapter 20. Even as God was given this command. And even as it was being burned into the tablet of stone by the finger of God. Guess what was going on downhill in the valley. All the people down there. Right, It's ironic that at the moment God's saying this. Not to have other gods before him, not to make graven image or image him falsely. Down the mountain, they were doing exactly that right then. You remember the story, don't you? Moses was up there how long? Yeah, 40 days. People began to think, we don't know what's happened to this, this Moses. <laughs> this Moses, what's going on there? They get impatient, right? We want to do things our own way. And so this whole thing begins to happen. It's um, over in uh, Genesis, and, or ex, I mean Exodus chapter 32. Um, they, they, they began to gather up all their jewelry and all their stuff, and they throw it into this pot. And um, guess what they did? They made a molten calf. They made an idol, a calf. Now, see, here's the thing. is that This is something, they wanted something they could see. We, we can't see the invisible God. Had they not seen the pillar of fire, the cloud, the, the, which was a representation. Had they not seen the miracles? Did they, hey, these people, did they not walk right through the Red Sea when it opened up? 
We don't know about this now. You see how weak and how fickle we are as people? Anyway, so they do this and they make this calf. And, and what's amazing to me, I don't think, I don't have that verse up there for you to see it, but it's in your notes as you are looking online. This verse 4, it's, they said this. They said, after this thing was made, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, now this figure is something they were familiar with from Egypt and things they had seen. It was something comfortable for them. But it almost sounds like they were saying, this is the God who brought you out. They knew about Jehovah God, the God who brought them out. They knew something about him. The question in my mind, were they actually saying, this is Jehovah God? This is the real God? Is that what they were saying? It kind of sounds like it. So they wanted something they could see. They weren't satisfied with a God who only spoke to them. They wanted more. And God was so angered when they did this that he almost wiped them out had Moses not intervened. Do you know that? They were all turning to this false God because they were trying to make God into a fashion more acceptable to them and worship him as they will. And, you know, immediately they just kind of, everything kind of went the way that their fleshly nature wanted. I mean, when they're coming down the mountain, Moses is like, what's going on? Is there war down there? Joshua's like, there's kinda, some kind of noise. Well, they find out they're not at war. They're, they're singing and dancing and all kinds of, listen, all kinds of raunchy stuff was going on down there that not, it was at all the way God had imaged himself that was associated with that. So you see how our tendency is? We want to make God the way we want him. We want to make God so that we can worship the way we want him want to worship. But God is God, and he has said, this is how you have to come to me, and there is no other way. And when we do those things, we're re-imaging God, and it's false worship. It's, it's the same way today. Many today are not content with the way God has imaged himself in his word, so they're seeking to do their own thing and they're creating of what they think God ought to be like. I wonder if we could sometimes have a false image of who God is in our hearts and our mind, an image that's not truly biblical. It could be more cultural living in the Bible Belt than it is biblical. There's folks that grew up in church that have this real idea of what God is like and all this, and, and, and their idea may not be solidly biblical. It may be more for cultural of the way we do stuff at church more than it is Scripture. So we have to, I want to examine that. I want to know that if that's happening in my life, don't you? So here's, the, here's where we end up, folks. False images lead to false worship. Whew! Isn't that the truth? Lord, help us. I would hate to get to the end of my life and know that what I thought was worship was really false worship in my life. Some Christians seek experiences that do not portray God's character as he has portrayed himself. People running all over the world doing all kinds of things. But we have the privilege and responsibility of presenting a correct image of him to a lost world. 
We do. Because we're his people. But a lot of people are running around, all this crazy stuff. I mean, there, there is more crazy stuff going on nowadays, and you see it everywhere. I mean, you turn on even Christian television, you're going to see some of it. People are expressing themselves, they're saying things, and they're doing things that are different than the way God, God has imaged him in his word. When you understand his word the way it's supposed to be understood. Some people you know, are always talking about God doing some new thing. Uh, but any new thing God does is not going to violate some old thing that's already in his word, right? Amen? They image God in a way he never imaged himself. Not content with the way that God has imaged himself. They want something more, something different. So as God's people, we've been given this privilege. We've been given this responsibility. This is what God wants. And see, and like even one of the old catacombs says, our chief purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And one of the basic meanings of glorify is to give a correct interpretation. One of the ways that I glorify God is because I'm obeying him, because of the faith I have in him, is that I want to give the correct interpretation of who he is. A lot of confusion today. Coming from our culture and from even in the people who call themselves Christians. Now, we need to meet people where they live with the simple gospel. We do. But we don't have to dilute or water down what God is saying in his word to make it more palatable to our culture. Because that's re-imaging God. That's not going to benefit anyone. That's not what they need. They need to know the truth. They need to know the real God of the Bible. Not something less. So, here's the thing. If we water down, dilute the gospel, we present a false image of God. When we use church or religion, watch this, to promote ourselves more than we are promoting the kingdom of God, we present a false image of God. And let's just face it, a lot of times, local even congregations and churches, it becomes more about us than it is about him. And we're promoting ourselves more than we're promoting God. Jesus said for us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's about his kingdom. And we're a local body of believers, but we're just a small part of his kingdom, working together with everybody else. When we rationalize and justify our sin in our lives, we know what God's word says, but we have excuses. We want to look at it. We want to interpret it different than what the normal interpretation would be. Hey, by the way, key to interpreting Bible is the same way you interpret any literature anywhere. There's laws of exegesis and hermeneutics. Those sound like fancy words, and I just wanted to sound fancy for just a moment there, you know. But, um, you know, but, but anyway, what that is, you apply basic rules that you would interpret what any piece of literature says to what, what the Bible is saying. You can understand that it says what it means and it means what it says. But we're not content with that. We want to make things say something different. We want to apply it differently so that we can rationalize and justify what we know is sin in our lives. And when we do that, you may think you've got it all figured out and it's okay and been approved, but not by God. And you're presenting a false image of God when you do that. Also, when we confine our worship experience to certain cultural guidelines... By culture, it could be worldly culture. It could be church culture. Because I want to tell you, there are a lot of ways that we do things that aren't, that aren't spelled out in the Scripture. And, and, and you know, in our past as a church, we have been more tied down and more worried about some of those cultural traditions that we've had than we have the very Word of God itself. And, and, and some of the toughest things we've done is we've asked, why do we do this this way? Well, we're just supposed to. Well, where does it say that in here? Right? I could give, 
a lot of examples there of things that we've thought about and we've had to tackle. But it doesn't matter whether it's worldly culture or church culture. That whenever we, when we confine our worship experience to that, we might be presenting a false image of God. When we try to confine God to fit our schedules and agenda, we present a false image of God. Not a single amen on that one, is there? See, because that's the thing. I always feel the crunch on Sunday morning. You know, I know if you're sitting and watching a two-hour, now they're like three hours. Movies, have you noticed? The movies are like, you know, if there's a good movie that's worth my time and my money, which a lot of them, frankly, not just because of, of raunchiness in it, but a lot of it just is not worth my time and my money. I don't know who I'm talking to today here. Uh, some of the young people, you don't have to see everything that comes out of, down the pike out of Hollywood. You don't. It's not worth your time. Not worth, it's not good for your mind, all that. Okay? So anyway, but now a lot of them are like three hours long. I'm getting to, pardon me, the age where we need to hit the pause button about halfway through and take a break. Amen? Right? But we'll, <laughs> that's a problem. But, but we will do that, but we can't sit through a 30-something minute sermon. Hey, watch it. You know what I'm saying? It's too much. We make time to do what we want to do, but we just can't get to Bible class, Bible study, small group, Sunday school. We can't get to worship. It's kind of like if there is nothing else at all, and I know there are times things come up, but if there is nothing else, then, okay, God, I'll go. What if God took and valued you like that and said, well, hoops, I hope I don't forget to give you the next breath. Hmm? Forgot to help you breathe today. When we confine God to our little schedule, that's a false image because he's God that holds time in his hand. Amen? Amen? All right. Here we go. Let's take it home. You ready? I mean, why don't leave it here? Let's take it home. So I was convicted when I read this that not to make any graven images because my first thought was, we don't do that. We don't have a problem with that, or do we? Are we imaging God? in the wrong way and presenting a false image of God as we worship and as we live for Him. So basic, God has imaged Himself in His Word. If you're going to know Him, this is how you're going to know Him. You can find out some things about God in nature, but you can't find out all you need to know about God in nature. You've got to get in His Word. Anything else we come up with falls way short. And I have to ask myself that question, am I misrepresenting Him through my life am I presenting a false image of God I want to be the real hey the real deal right I want it to be real in my life and I know there's a lot of ways that I fall short I've got a lot of growing to do but I want to be real how about you we, we'll build this journey together pray with me Father